Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello again, and thanks for listening. We're happy you added us to your podcast queue. This is episode number 42 of The Next Track. This week, we want to talk about an, a ubiquitous element in digital music listening, the playlist. Back in the day, we had songs and albums. In fact, our very first episode of the podcast was talking about the difference between songs and albums. And when digital came along, all of a sudden, we had an, another option for listening, and that was the playlist. And the playlist lets us combine music in a variety of ways. We'll discuss more of the various types of playlists you can make. But first, what about the history of the playlist? Doug, you know where this term comes from. Well, you know, before I got into radio, I remember, um, you know, we'd call in a request to a radio station and... When they didn't play it, we always assumed, and we even said amongst ourselves, well, that must not be on their playlist. You know, there's a master list somewhere of the songs the station can play, and, and what we wanted to hear wasn't on it. But when I got into radio, playlist wasn't a word that was widely used at all. We, we had a music log, and in radio, any list is a log, like a transmitter log or a commercial log, traffic log. So you had a music log which in the early days, if you're doing like a free-form show or if the DJ was responsible for, for playing songs, you filled out a music log that you'd hand into the music director and then he'd calculate uh, weekly spins and things like that, which would be reported to record labels and trade magazines. But later, a music log would be generated by the music director using software programs, but still, this daily list was called the music log, and I don't remember it ever being called a playlist. In fact, the term playlist actually has a negative connotation in radio since it implies that you're limiting or restricting the music that you play. Now, maybe club DJs had playlists or set lists, but it wasn't a common term in radio. Now, developers of early MP3 players, they may have used the term playlist because that's what they thought the radio word was. Wikipedia, in its article about playlists, says, as far as radio is concerned, says the term originally came about in the early days of top 40 radio formats. But just after that, there is a little thing in parentheses, citations needed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then it continues when stations would devise and eventually publish a limited list of songs to be played. The term would then go on to refer to the entire catalog of songs that a given radio station would draw from. And this is the, the, the idea that we do have, that in radio at any given day or week or whatever, a station that's part of a big network has a limited list of music it can play. But isn't that the case today? Well, yeah, I wouldn't dispute that description, but I maintain that the term playlist was not part of our radio jargon. Adjunct industries like record labels or music trade publications may have used the word informally, or like I said, club DJs may have used it, but I don't remember it being a radio word. It had a negative connotation. But one way or another, a playlist, a digital playlist, eventually came to conventionally mean a list of songs to play. So the antecedent to the digital playlist, at least as far as individuals are concerned, is something totally different. It's the mixtape. And mixtape started in the 70s when cassettes became popular. And you would take an album and you would either have a tape deck connected to it or you'd have a portable cassette player that you'd connect to the headphone jack, I guess, right? With a, a double-end, one-inch cable or something like that. So it would be headphone jack to, to the input on a, a, a recordable tape recorder. Well, if you had a component system with a cassette deck, your receiver may have had a tape monitor such that um, anything playing through the receiver could be recorded by the cassette deck. Right. So you'd put on an album and you'd play a song. You'd record it onto your tape. You'd pause the cassette when the song was over. You'd put another album on, choose another song. When it started, you'd put the tape on. And this could take hours. And, and it was an art form. Well, sort of. 
I mean, I guess it took a little skill to make sure the songs segued without any tape transport noise. You know, unless you kept your finger on the pause button, if you had to actually disengage the tape mechanism, you'd invariably have this glitchy tape noise between songs because you'd have to reset record play. So I remember having to carve out an hour and a half or so to make a mixtape live, although it was a lot easier uh, when I was in radio. We used to make mixtapes at the station with two turntables and, you know, have real segues. But doing it at home, it did take a little skill. I can think of a number of popular media elements where the mixtape has an important role. Nick Hornby's High Fidelity, which I think I've mentioned a couple of times because I did spend a couple of years hanging out in a record store in a very similar situation. There was also the Cameron Crowe movie, Elizabeth Town, where Orlando Bloom meets Kirsten Dunst. And she makes a bunch of mixtapes for him on CDs. She makes them, not on cassette, obviously, after he leaves her and he's traveling across the country. And of course, it ends with a happy ending. Um, I never made a mixtape for a girl. Did you? Oh, yeah, sure. Oh, okay. A lot of tapes. Not a lot of girls. Right, but you were already into radio, and you were you were yeah. probably already a teenage ham radio operator. No, no, um, no So not. you already had your cred as, no. as doing stuff like that. No, no that, that's something I never did. But yeah, the, the mixtape was, was a very personal way of saying, here's the music I like, I want to share it with you. Now, of course, that next changed when we got to CD. With a CD player, you could pro- program tracks on a CD, and if you had like a five CD player, you could pick a track from one and then a track from another, but... Well, these motorized CD changers sound like a bicycle factory when they're going from one CD to another trying to locate another random track. And you could only have five CDs. So it was fine if you were, it was up and out of the way in a closet somewhere. But if you had it as part of your component system, it really was kind of clunky. Now, the, the playlist's modern incarnation came into its own in February 2001 when Apple released iMacs that had rewritable CD drives iTunes that had just been released around that time allowed you to rip the CDs and add them to your library and create playlists. And and Apple launched an advertising campaign called Rip, Mix, Burn, because with these new devices, with these new iMacs, you could rip your CDs, make your playlists in iTunes, and then make your own mixtape playlists and put them on CDs, which you could then give to your girlfriend or listen to in your car or in a CD player that's not connected to your computer. And to be clear, playlists were part of MP3 players. Soundjam, of course, created playlists, and I believe Winamp had playlists. But as you say, it wasn't until iTunes came along on everybody's computer that playlists actually became a a thing. Well, in preparation for this show, we looked back at Audion, which was a popular Mac MP3 player, and even pre-OS X, so the, the, the official release of OS X was late 2001. So even the, the, the Mac OS 9 version had playlists. So playlists do date back a bit before that. But, you know, how many people ripped CDs and, and had MP3 players on their computers before iTunes? It was really marginal. Uh, iTunes is what is what turned it into a phenomenon. Exactly. So we then get to using playlists on a computer because now you're no longer you making playlists to be able to burn to CD, but you're making playlists to listen to on your computer, to sync to your mobile device, to share with people and all that. Now, a- as always, we are iTunes-centric people, so we will talk about iTunes, but all media player software allows you to make playlists and export them and import them and burn them and do things. Spotify and Apple Music and Title and all the other streaming music services also not only allow you to make playlists, but listen to playlists that they've made. Spotify lets you subscribe to other users' playlists. So the, the playlist is, in a way, 
if if a song is an atom, a playlist is a molecule of digital music today. Yeah, the smallest unit is the track, as we've discussed before. And when it becomes disintegrated from the album, you need something to create order, and it's it's the playlist. What we wanted to do now, since we've gotten all that out of the way, is to discuss what you can do with playlists. The easiest thing is that you can make a list of songs and listen to them in order or in shuffle mode. Do you do that often? I um, I consider playlists to be semi-temporary, you know, a semi-temporary list of songs. So yes, I'll create a few randomized playlists, throw a few albums in there, and then and then play it in shuffle, sure, but I, I eventually delete it. I don't have a single playlist that is like, I want to listen to these 10 songs in this particular order. The only playlists I have like that would be, for instance, when Bob Dylan um, released Blood on the Tracks, there were about four songs that were recorded. Blood on the Tracks was recorded first in New York, and then Bob Dylan played it for his brother, and his brother said it was too dull, it was too monotonous. So he went to Minnesota and hired some sort of semi-professional musicians and redid a lot of the tracks. But there were four tracks from the original New York sessions that were recorded to LP for, for test pressings that were never released. So I have a playlist of Blood in the Tracks, including those four tracks. They're not necessarily in the correct order, but that way I can listen to all of the tracks of Blood on the Tracks, both the album and the extra tracks, which have been officially released on other Bob Dylan collections. Right. But in this case, the playlist becomes an extension of the album, and the unofficial stuff is, well, they're like they're accessories. But you could include you know, PDFs of lyrics or artwork in a, in a playlist album. But I don't necessarily use a playlist per album like I know a lot of people do. You know, every album goes into its own playlist. A lot of people do that. I hear from people who do that all the time, and they have hundreds, even thousands of playlists. Yeah, and where we would use the column browser uh, to get at albums and artists faster, many people just use playlists to organize their collections. So one of the things that I use playlists for is, as you say, organization. For example, I have a number of artists that I like a lot, and I've talked about them here, Grateful Dead, Bob Dylan, Brian Eno, Bill Evans, Brad Meldow, a number of classical composers. And I find that if I group all of their albums into a playlist, it's very easy for me to consult them. And I'm thinking, okay, I want to listen to a Brian Eno album, but I don't know which one. And I look in that playlist. Now, the reason I do it in a playlist rather than searching is when you search in iTunes and then you click away and come back, your search is gone, so you've got to start the search over. Whereas in a playlist, I can choose which view I want, whether I want it in a list view or a grid view or whatever. So I've probably got a hundred odd playlists like that. Classical composers, classical box sets that I organize in that way, my favorite, you know, pop and rock performers. And so for me, it's an organizational tool that lets me zero in on the things I like best. For instance, I'm a big fan of Morton Feldman, classical composer, and every once in a while I want to listen to something of his, and I've got about 70 albums worth of his music. And rather than scroll through some sort of a list, I look at it in albums view, and then I just start playing like that. One of the things that I find uh, very convenient, uh, at least as far as Apple Script goes, is to return a result of tracks into a playlist, for instance. You'll frequently run an Apple script to say, you know, find me all the tracks that meet a particular criteria, uh, perhaps in such a way that a smart playlist can't. And the only way to get them to get them all together is to create a new playlist with Apple script and then copy the tracks to it. So, well, you were just talking about search results, and I have a script called search results to playlist that emulates the iTunes search field, but instead of just listing results, it simply creates a playlist with the track results. Yeah, that's a great way to build the kind of playlist that I was talking about. If you want to go through and make playlists of your favorite artists and performers and all that. 
Um, another way to use this for organizational purposes is to use a smart playlist, which is a form of a search, actually. It's a form of a database query. Now, I have a number of albums that are in mono, and I have a smart playlist that looks for mono in the titles of the albums. So these are the ones that I've highlighted as being specific mono albums like Dylan and Miles Davis and, and a number of things like that. So I have a smart playlist that groups all those. But before the show, we were discussing a problem, a pretty obscure iTunes problem. And in, in order to find if I had any PDF files in my iTunes library, I made a smart playlist where kind is PDF. And I found that I didn't have any, but you can do that with a smart playlist, even for a temporary search. It's a multi-criteria search, which is much better than using iTunes search box. Yeah, I actually have several permanent live updating smart playlists that keep track of things like just local files, iCloud match tracks, iCloud ineligible, iCloud duplicates, iCloud uploaded, and that sort of thing. So I can quickly check for inconsistencies. Okay, and so here's another example of smart playlists. So I said before that I don't listen to playlists. I don't listen to static playlists in order, but I have lots of smart playlists. And, and one of my, uh, one that I listen to often is my Bill Evans 1980 playlist. And there are two box sets of recordings that Bill Evans did in the summer of 1980, just before he died. I think one is six CDs and one's eight CDs. And I have a smart playlist pulling these songs at random from these CDs, and I just go through it from time to time. So you must have it set to limit. How many tracks in total, and, and how much do you limit the smart playlist to? So there are a total of 191 tracks on these 14 CDs worth of music, and I limit the playlist to 25 because I don't need too many. But that way I get to listen to them you know, over time, and I even have a condition, something I haven't listened to in the last year. So you know, that brings them back, um, refreshes things that I haven't listened to. And and I have a number of smart playlists like that for, for in particular for jazz. I don't do that for classical, obviously. And I have some, I, I have a smart playlist for all my five star songs, for instance. So if I really want to listen to something and it's like, I want some familiar music right now, I'll just go into that. It'll be my five star songs, all the things that I really like and own and not classical. It's just rock and alt and punk and you know everything other than classical it's it's really amazing what a smart playlist can do for your library and i think uh a lot of itunes users would probably say that the smart playlist is one of the best if not the best feature or the last best feature that's uh that was introduced by itunes yeah apple added smart playlists in version three of itunes in july of 2002 wow that long ago. Yeah, it's, it's, it's 15 years old. It, it is one of the most interesting features of iTunes. Now, continuing on the smart playlist and regular playlists, here's, here's where I use them. In fact, the most important use for me is to sync music to my iPhone. So when you connect an iOS device to iTunes, you have a number of options for syncing your music. One of them is to sync all your music, which if you have a library my size, you won't be able to do that on any iOS device. But another one is to sync selected playlists, artists, albums, and genres. So you get a display in iTunes and you have playlists and artists and then you scroll down, you have genres and albums. Now you could choose to sync all of a genre. You could choose to sync individual albums. But what I do is I set up a number of playlists. I have a playlist that's called Dylan Selected. It's my favorite Dylan albums or Eno Selected, my favorite Brian Eno albums. The ones that I absolutely want on my iPhone. I have an Ultravox playlist. It's the three Ultravox albums, but it's easier to select it to sync from a playlist than it is to select it any other way. Now, of course, I also sync my five-star song playlist. And I have an other music playlist where I drag a bunch of things that don't fit into any other playlist, and I use that to sync as well. You really got it going at your place, man. 
Yeah, well, I've, you know, I've been writing about this forever, and I've had to figure out the most efficient ways to do it. And I, I find the playlist syncing really easy because you can unsync a playlist by just a single click instead of having to find all the different albums and artists and everything. It's a really efficient way also if you want to often change what's on your device, adding one playlist and removing another. All right, so you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I don't sync stuff. I'm a manually managed guy. But um, you can sync a smart playlist, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah. I sync lots of smart playlists. So when you sync it to a device, does it maintain its dynamism? That is, I thought it essentially just kind of turned into a plain playlist without continuing to live update. Is, is that correct? No, that's not correct. So if you have a smart playlist that says play songs that I've bought in the last six months and the play count is zero, for instance, and you're listening on an iPhone, once you've played one of the tracks, it won't show up again on the iPhone in that playlist. So it does live update on the device. The only thing is, if you have a playlist like my Bill Evans playlist, it's limited to 25 tracks, it'll only copy those 25 tracks to the iPhone. And since there's another condition of not played in the last year, once I've played them, they will be gone on the iPhone. They'll still be on the iPhone, but they won't be in the playlist. So a playlist will update if it has live updating checked. And if you have other music on your device that meets the conditions. And again, with the play count, if you're limiting to a number of play counts or, or last played date, anything that you've listened to will drop out of the playlist, even if it's still on the device. It's a little bit confusing. It can't bring more tracks in until the next sync, but it will continue to, to, to permutate according to your conditions. Now, there's another type of playlist that you mentioned before the show, the M3U playlist. What's that for? An M3U playlist is a text file that lists the file paths of audio files. So when a player reads an M3U playlist, it not only gets the order that you want the files played in, but it also knows where to go looking for the files so it can play them. Now, this kind of M3U playlist relies on the absolute paths of the audio files, but M3U can also use relative paths, which is a very powerful thing. Typically, you'd create a folder of audio files and then create an M3U playlist in that folder that lists the relative paths referring to the audio files directly beneath it, as it were, in the folder. And in that way, you can locate the folder anywhere, even on a, a different machine or a different device, load the M3U file, and the player will know where the files are. M3U playlists also have another feature called extended info, which you, whereby you, you insert a line of text adjacent to the file path that the player will use for display purposes, like in a car audio player uh, that may not read file metadata, like a lot of them don't. So it will rely on the information in an M3U playlist for very basic track info. Yeah, it's good that you point out that this is common in cars. And I get a lot of questions from my Ask the iTunes Guy column about that. A lot of people have car players that only work with M3U playlists. Or um, only recognize MP3s and not AECs or lossless files. Or, that too, yeah. And, and this is really just an aside to our conversation, but car players can sometimes only read the file name or sometimes they can read metadata, and sometimes they require a playlist, an M3U playlist, to provide track information. So it's really a mess, and the well-connected car dashboard can't come soon enough for me. One last use of the playlist that I'd like to mention, which is very useful, it's not for music, it's for audiobooks. If you rip audiobook CDs, you could end up with a whole bunch of tracks, or you can use Doug's Join Together applet, which, link in the show notes, which lets you join things into a single file or into a number of smaller files. But if you just want to keep the original files, you can make a smart playlist which looks for album and artist, right? Which is album being the name of the book and artist being the name of the author. And it looks 
for files that have not been read. So play count is zero. So as you listen to the playlist, each file that you've listened to drops out of the playlist. And whenever you go back to that playlist, you are up to the next point in the book where you want to listen to. Now, I, I don't have a lot of audiobooks uh, that I've ripped from CDs, but for the ones that I do have, I do that for all my Shakespeare plays, for example. When I want to listen to one, I'll create a playlist to listen to it. I don't keep these playlists. And uh, after I've listened to the play, then I'll get rid of the playlist. Right. That's a great idea because uh, keeping track of all those files that you can rip from a CD audiobook, there could be dozens and dozens of them. Right. And again, if you want to join the tracks, you can use Join Together and that works fine. But sometimes you don't want to. So my Shakespeare plays, each file is generally a scene. And I'd rather have that scene as the name of the track. And if I'm listening to it and I see, okay, I'm at the end of act two, scene three, so I'm going to take a break and make some tea. I want to stop. And I'd rather not do that in the middle of something. It's better to do it where there's a scene break. It just makes it a little bit easier. So we really haven't talked about playlists on streaming services. There are gazillions of them. They're for barbecuing or studying or for sleeping or for children playing or for everything like that. I think these playlists are simply to get people to listen to music that they wouldn't listen to. What it really is, it's a way to hear the same 500 songs that people like in a different but interesting order. I listen to For You playlists, the curated playlists, and sometimes they work for me and sometimes they don't, but essentially they're just resorting the stuff that I like. Yeah, so I'm just looking in For You, and, and right now I've got a playlist in For You, Alternative Hits 1977. Great year. Starts out with the Talking Heads, Psycho Killer, and then a demo of the Buzzcocks song, Boredom. Now, putting a demo in is kind of dumb. And there's Blondie, and there's the Ramones, and the Sex Pistols, and the Damned, and, you know... Then it goes on to the Boomtown Rats, Iggy Pop, David Bowie Television. The problem is that playlists like this are just... Someone has picked all these songs and put them together. I don't find that there is any, you know, if you listen to a DJ playing music in a club or on a radio, there is, there is, there's a discourse in the way the music is played. There are ups and downs. It's not just random. And, and I get the feeling here that these songs come out just random. It's a nice selection of songs. And actually, I'd almost want to put them in random order, in shuffle order. But I don't find that this sort of playlist has, it's not a programmatic playlist. It's not something to listen to from beginning to end where the value of the playlist is more than the sum of the songs. There are some like that, and there are also some DJ shows on Apple Music that are done quite well. Uh, Fatboy Slim shows are pretty dynamic. But for the most part, for, for mavens like us, static playlists in the For You section are uh, like pedestrian, banal. I found it can be useful as a way to rediscover some music, particularly things from the 70s that I haven't heard in a long time. But I just clicked on another one, Miles Davis, the second great quintet. It's two hours of music that Miles Davis did with, obviously, the second great quintet, you know, after the sort of kind of blue period. And this doesn't work together. You've got Fida Kilimanjaro followed by My Funny Valentine Live. You've got, like, ESP followed by Walk-In Live. I mean, these are things that just don't fit together. If there was some sort of chronology, it might work for this sort of playlist. But then again, I know the music and I'm picky. Here's another one that I get this week, The Clash Next Steps. That's funny. I got that one this week too. Oh, that's um, interesting. Okay. I like those Next Step ones because they have deeper cuts. So for instance, there are three songs from Sandinista, one after another. The Call Up One More Time in Hitsville, UK. All great songs. Totally great songs. But... Either you put them in order or you don't. There's something that's kind of weird about the, 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 the structure of a playlist like this. 
It's got one live track, City of the Dead Live from, from Here to Eternity. Great song, not a great live track. It ends with Inoculated City, which is not a great song from Combat Rock. I would want to see it end with Armageddon Time, which is in the playlist. Or, you know, Hitsville UK would be the perfect track to end this playlist. You with. are such a DJ now. Well, so it's interesting. Again, we've talked many times. I generally listen to albums. I don't listen to songs. And every once in a while, I will go through. So I have to confess, I don't make playlists, but I use up next in iTunes every once in a while to say, okay, I want to listen to a bunch of Clash songs. I'm going to pick six or eight of them, my favorites, and then I'll put them in order. But I end up doing this chronologically. I don't often choose, you know, a fast song, then a slow song, or a fast song followed by a fast song. You use um, Genius Shuffle too, right? That's an amazing thing. I use Genius Shuffle. So Genius Shuffle is, the iTunes Genius feature is something that takes a track and then builds a random playlist of music that goes with that track from your library. Now, Genius Shuffle, to activate this, you press the Option key or the Alt key on Windows and, and the Space Bar at the same time. iTunes picks a track at random and then populates your Up Next queue with a bunch of tracks that are similar to it. And I love this, but it's not a playlist. It's, it's Shuffle. It may be the second best feature after Smart Playlist. Yeah, I think it is. And unfortunately, Genius is being phased out. They got rid of it on iOS, and that really hurts me because I used to use this all the time when I'd go walking. I'd listen to music on shuffle and I'd say, hey, I like that song. I want more like that genius playlist. And I'd get, you know, a half hour of good music. But that's, I don't call that a playlist. It's, it's just another way of shuffling your music. So I guess it, it all comes back to the fact that songs are atoms and playlists are molecules and molecules are better, to, better than atoms. And we can listen that way or we can listen to the molecules that are albums and, you know, whatever way your pleasure tends, as the Grateful Dead song says, you may use a lot of playlists, you may not. I'd really appreciate if listeners could post comments on our show page if you have any unique ways of using playlists. Because I know from my correspondence with iTunes users that lots of people use playlists in ways that I would never think of. And if we get enough interesting ideas from people, we can do another show discussing more ways to use playlists. Which we're going to have to do because this show about playlists is over. Except for this part, the very end of the show where Kirk and I like to tell you about our next tracks, the music that we'll be listening to at home next. Kirk, what you got? So I had been planning a specific next track this week, something that I'd been listening to. But as we were doing the show, I ended up talking about The Clash and I realized I need to go put some Clash on after we're finished recording. I've been a fan of The Clash since forever. Unfortunately, I didn't get to see them live when they played in New York back in the day and then they broke up. But there are five albums, The Clash... Give Them Enough Rope, London Calling, Sandinista, and Combat Rock, to a certain extent, are just extraordinary. Sandinista's got a lot of filler. London Calling may be the greatest rock and roll album ever made. But I'm going to pick an album that's a little more obscure. And in fact, it's so obscure that a few years ago, when they released a box set of all their albums, it wasn't included. And I had to buy it separately, essentially for one track that's on this album. It's called Super Black Market Clash. Now, there was a previous version called Black Market Clash. It was a 10-inch EP. I think it had eight or 10 songs on it. And Super Black Market Clash is 77 minutes long with 21 songs. And it has, in my opinion, one of the Clash's best song, Justice Tonight slash Kick It Over, which is just an extraordinary song with just the, 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 the key beat of the Clash in this period, this sort of Sandinista period. It, it's a kind of a best of singles because it's got some alternate stuff and it's got some tracks that are on other albums like City of the Dead, The Prisoner, it's got Pressure Drop and 
things like that. But it, it's got a number of songs that are, are really worth having. And it's the only place you can get that track, Just It's Night, Kick It Over, which is a nine-minute track. And it's probably one of my favorite class tracks. What about you, Doug? What are you listening to this week? Well, recently, one of our favorite bass players passed away. John Wetton is being remembered for being the bass player in early incarnations of King Crimson and a member of Asia and also as a prolific session guy. But did you know that John Wetton was also, at various times, a member of Roxy Music, UK, Family, Uriah Heep, Wishbone Ash, and Mogul Thrash? That's right. Mogul Thrash. Now, I count myself as one of the very few fans of this band, which was sort of like a power rock jazz funk fusion horn band that was around for one album in 1970. Their self-titled album is quite the artifact nowadays, but it does hold up pretty well. In fact, two of its members went on to form the average white band who had a lot of pop success. But Mogul Thrash, they're not poppy. They were progressive and big and funky. Horn bands were getting big around this time, too. I mean, there was Mandrill and Santana to a degree, Sly and the Family Stone, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Chicago. But those were American bands. Mogul Thrash was a U.K. band that kind of took that sound and really ran with it. They really had their own thing going. Plus, it's fun to say Mogul Thrash. They're my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>